six years with Gong, hyper growth. Any advice you would give yourself as the head of sales now with all the experience you have? It would be never be a head of sales, be the guy who hires and fires heads of sales. It's not about you being heard by your executives. It's about you making yourself. The mindset you shouldn't have is I deserve it. You don't get what you deserve, you get what you negotiate. If you think about the distance between you and your like dream life, the distance is not measured in time, it's measured in skills. I'm loving this. Oh my God, I'm just thinking how many people I would share our conversation with. I want to make the biggest contribution to global sales success of any company on the planet. You all know Gong Io, right? From 200,000 to 200 million ARR in under five years. Uh, pretty impressive, right? Well, today I have Chris Orlop, the head of sales for Gong, who was one of the first people they hired and who stayed with the company throughout the entire time of the hypergrowth and now can share how to build and operate in the hypergrowth environment. Chris and I talked a lot about leadership, culture, and people of the hypergrowth companies. You shouldn't miss this episode. I had so much fun and I learned a lot from Chris. So make sure you are tuning in now, all right? Thank you and enjoy the episode. My company, Belkins, we've been on the, in business for five years. We are at 300 people right now and growth is our mission. And I was under impression that I was growing insanely, like doubling every year. But I mean, you know, Gong did 200 million ARR at that time with like 1500 people and you've been part of that team. So I wanted to understand what you've been going through at that time and uh, kind of the challenges you've been through and the, you know, the outcomes of those and how it made you a better person of who you are today. I wanted to start off with the block about people, right? Because obviously people are building companies and you work with one of the most incredible people out there, right? So, you know, the people were top in their field, top of their class. So I wanted to understand who were those people, you know, describe to me their personalities, if you can. I think it depends on the role. The first thing I would talk about is just the value of having those people. Right. I'm already feeling that with P Club, which is the business I'm running. Right. Right. Like up until the first few months of P Club were just me. Right. It mm -hmm. was like creating our first course and marketing it. And my co-founder, who, you know, I've co-founded business with or businesses with before. Right. He still had his job. And then he joined mm -hmm. in like January. And so now we went into a higher form of leverage. He hired an engineering team. And now that part of the business was taken care of, right? Like product management, engineering, I was able to free myself up a little bit more. And then, you know, fast forward a few months, we hired a head of course production. And this guy's full job is to go recruit course authors with us or for us and create mm -hmm. courses to put into the P Club ecosystem. And so now I didn't have to do that anymore. And so yesterday, I just came out of our first ever inaugural senior leadership offsite, right? We were planning for 2024 and it's the first time in this business, right? We're not even a year in, but it's the first time that I have felt us finally reaching escape velocity because it, you know, it's just three of us. We have three leaders. We're hiring our fourth, fifth and sixth pretty soon, but I felt the weight of problem solving, not totally on my shoulders anymore, right? I now have two other people in the room with me 
who are who feel a sense of ownership over the business yeah. and feel a sense of ownership over solving some of these problems. And so like that's some of the values like if you're an entrepreneur or any type of leader, the more great people you add to your mix as long as they have a specific job to do, the higher leverage you can spend your own time. Right? I don't have to write right. email copy anymore or create landing pages or work with course authors. Um, you know, to create mm -hmm. courses, I can now start to continue up leveling into the more strategic and, and that's how scaling works, right? Like that's what happened at Gong is like, yes, it's not that simple. You need product market fit, um, which is not trivial, right? It can be hard to arrive at that, mm -hmm. but as soon as you're onto something, it's just kind of this ever growing, like, Hiring people, but not so much that you can't afford it and managing your burn rate um, in such a way that like you as the leader, you're buying back your own time. In fact, there's this guy named Dan Martell uh, who wrote a book called recently called Buy Back Your Time. And it's it's really great. And the entire principle of the book is you should hire people to do things that you're currently doing so you can continually ascend right. up the leverage yes. ladder. Now, yeah. what do those people look like? I think it depends on the stage of the business and the role, mm -hmm. right? So one of the, uh, I don't have a better analogy and I realize like this analogy could rub some people the wrong way, but I'm going to use it anyway. Um, when we're making hires today, we say, is this person a barrel or are they ammunition? And I don't remember where we got that. We didn't invite or invent that. But what I mean by that is like, if you're ammunition instead of a barrel of a gun, um, that means you need structure and a playbook already placed, and then we can put you into that system and you'll perform well. There's nothing wrong with that, but that's what you do. A barrel is somebody who can point themselves in the right direction and figure things out and take an ambiguous situation and bring certainty to it and build the playbook. And so right now, like in the early stage, we only hire barrels. If you're somebody who operates well within a pre-designed system, that's great, but we're not ready for you yet. We need people to build the system first. And so I think that's one thing is just like, is there enough intellectual horsepower and ability to deal with ambiguity? That Those are two big traits for people joining early stage startups because that's all there is is ambiguity. <laughs> Every day is ambiguous. Um the rest of them, right, I think some of these are generic, but they're generic for a reason. You have to be gritty, right? Like building a startup is super hard. Um, depending on the role, you generally have to have like some pretty tight business acumen, especially if it's like a go-to-market role uh, or, or anything like that. Um, and then a sense of ownership over the mission of the business. Like, do you give a shit over what? the business is trying to accomplish over the next 10 years. And is that something you're willing to invest a portion of your life in? Now, the profile of these people starts to look different as you scale the business, right? You, when you reach 30 or 50 or a hundred million dollars, now you're looking more so for seasoned operators. These people aren't always creators. They're not creating new things from scratch. They're optimizing an existing system. There's nothing wrong with that. I don't, I don't look down at that skill set. It's not my skill set. Um, that's just what they do, right? Like they are really good at taking a medium sized business and making it bigger through optimizing. So hopefully that answers at least. It does. What we're doing. It does. Yeah. So 
obviously, you know, every organization, you know, including Gong at, at, at the time, um, had certain life stages or cycles of sort of like development that were processing through people and teams and 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 as you said, like burials and ammunition, which is a great analogy, by the way. I'm gonna use that later. The the right decisions that were made at the beginning with the right barrels, with you know, people with the right attitude, the mindset, the the sense of the ownership, essentially set up Gong to success and your team to success to be able to kind of grow and streamline. That is Yeah, the uh, I mean the analogy the I don't know if this is an analogy. One of the things our CEO used to say is, here's how you make a unicorn company. You build a product so good that a weak go-to-market team could sell it. And you build a go-to-market team so good that they could sell a weak product. And if you do both of those things, then you've got a unicorn. Now, it's easier said than done. And there are a few things that go into it, but a lot of it comes down to people. Because if you hire very smart, passionate people, and you don't have one of those things, they can figure out how to get you there, right? If you lack product market fit, well, that's a problem that can be solved. Are we targeting the wrong market? Should we talk about new market segments? Should we talk about a different pain to solve? Do we reposition the product? Um, so, so that, you know, Amit, our CEO, or Gong CEO, would use that as shorthand, but he's totally right, right? Build an amazing product, that even a weak sales team could sell and build a sales and marketing team so good they could sell a weak product. You do both of those things and and you've got one of those nine or ten figure yeah. <laughs> unicorn companies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when, we, when we talk about leadership, um, uh, were there people with you for all those six years that stay, stayed with, with, with Gong for all that time? Yeah. There were a few for yeah, sure, I mean, right? There's a there's a guy named Jameson Young who's still there. Uh, he was Gong's first VP of sales. He started in, I think it was July 2017, oh. right? So six years ago, yeah. we were probably doing $500,000 in ARR at the time. And right now he's SVP of corporate sales and he's still there. And <laughs> sometimes I'm surprised he's still there. <laughs> I mean, it's a grind, right? Like yeah. he went from a $500,000 yeah. business to... Uh, I would guess they're doing somewhere around 250 million now. Uh -huh. um, and he's been able to change his skill set throughout the different stages of growth, which mm -hmm. you have to do. Right. Some people didn't right. do that well. Some people were really good up until around $20 million. And then um, they were self-aware enough to know this, you know, this isn't for me anymore. I'm not, I'm not looking to scale a big company. I like building things from nothing to, to escape velocity. And then I'm out. Yeah. And I'm sure there will be people that were not self-aware that and oh totally right. I mean for a time I was one of them right like I uh, I wanted there was a time where I wanted to scale gone to a billion in revenue and I wanted to be there for that journey and I was trying to convince myself that that I would like doing that and now uh, after you know, having left the company on good terms, I, I would want nothing to do with that. I'm an entrepreneur through and through. I want to build my own company to that, but there's, you know, there's a different sense of satisfaction that comes from, um, you know, if you are an entrepreneur scaling somebody else's business versus scaling yours. Um, but, but even as an entrepreneur, right. And I have lofty aspirations for P club. Um, there are scaling skills that I don't have. And that I know I, and that I don't want and that I'm going to have to hire for. So, for example, 
Um, I am very good at marketing. I am very good at product market strategy. I'm very good at raising money. I'm very good at people leadership. I am not good at people management. I think those are two yeah. different things, people leadership and people management. I hate people management. I love people. I just don't like to manage them on a daily yeah. basis. And so there will probably come a time in, in P clubs, you know, growth trajectory where I have two direct reports and that's it. My CTO who runs our product and engineering mm-hmm. org. Mm-hmm. And then one day I aspire to hiring a COO yeah. who runs everything go to market. Because that helps me do what I do best, which is figure out the vision of the company, Mm. deal with product market strategy issues that we need to deal with and stay, you know, thought leadership, marketing, you know, kind of genius zone that I have. This actually goes into another topic that's that people don't discuss enough, which is like some people will be like, what should a CEO do or what does a CEO do? And it's like, well, it depends on the CEO. Especially if they're an entrepreneur CEO, like you mold that job to the person's strengths. There is no like predefined job description of a CEO. So some other guy was telling me one day, he was like a CEO of a company that he hired a management consultant and the management consultant told him, the CEO, that he's not a typical CEO because he's not doing like basically people management stuff. And I was like, fuck that guy. Like, he doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> right. Like, there, there's no, like, box yes. that, that that job encapsulates. It just depends on the person's strengths. That's so true. It's interesting. A, a very good concept of having a people management and people leadership because usually the founders of the company have are great in people leadership, right? But they're not good at scale at people management at all. And mm-hmm. When we were at the 50 to 100 people, we were good at people management because we talked to everyone, we knew everyone. Now, when we are at the 300 people, we, are, we suck at people management. And, and, and our HR team, our you know, VPs, they just come in and say, guys, I'm sorry, you cannot send that message or I'm sorry, that wasn't the good way, you know? So it's like, and that is so true, right? Because it, there's a totally different you know, skill set. And sometimes you being either CEO or the founder, you just don't realize this, right? And if it's too late for you to realize, you cannot scale, right? You just have a, always people in and out, et cetera. And that's not you know, good for, for the business. Uh, so talking about those key leaders you work with side by side, can you describe their personalities to me, you know, who they are with regards to like, other like jackasses, yeah. straightforward, honest, smart. Like- no, I mean, I'll get, I'll go through a few of them. So Amit Bendav, I'll start with him, right? He's the CEO of Gong. Um, he comes across as very laid back and nice and like, j- just like a good guy. And he is all those things, but he also has the steely de- determination of an entrepreneur, right? Like his mind is always thinking, right? Uh, about things. The thing that defines a meet is I've never seen him lack conviction. Like you, you'll never see him wavering from like his vision or anything like that. I've just never seen a hint of doubt. So, so that's a meet, right? A meet is very strategic minded, um, very nice, but is also demanding at the same time, right? There were times like he would send an email to me and he's like, you're moving way too slow. Like, what is go? (laughs) So, um, you know, there's a little bit of some conflicting personality traits. 
Uh, Udi, who was the VP of marketing, then chief marketing officer, and now he's doing a different role there. Um, he was actually kind of similar. Um, I think he's a, a little bit less intense than a meet, right? Like a meets CEO of the company. Of course, he's going to be more intense. A meets a little more uh, playful, hmm. right? Like, a, or not, not a meet, sorry. Udi. Udi is like a very playful guy. I spent a lot of time with him. Hmm. Like he's, I consider him a good friend now. We go hiking and stuff and he, he likes to have fun, but like also a very demanding guy when you're working, for him, right? He demands um, excellence out of his people. Jameson was the same way. Jameson, um, excellent coach, right? Like he, if you came to him with a problem, he never gave you the answer. He always got the answer out of you by asking you questions. Very good at holding people accountable, which defines a good leader. Like Jameson, Jameson cares deeply about people, but does not care if they like him. That's what makes Jameson so great is he wants you to be successful. He invests in you. He doesn't care if he rubs you the wrong way sometimes by holding you accountable, though. He's very good at holding people accountable in, like, the right way. Um, and then the other guy I would mention, well, there's probably a couple more. Uh, Aron Aloni, who is still there, uh, he was the COO in the early days. I, I think he's, like, EVP of partnerships now. Um, he joined before me. And, uh, again, very just good human very like direct that categorized everybody. Everybody's very direct. It was almost like in meetings, we went from yelling at each other, arguing about something yeah. to ending the meeting and being like, so where do you guys want to go get pizza? <laughs> in fact, like that, that's part of the culture of P club that I, that I prize is like, we have very spirited debates, very passionate debates. Nobody's afraid of like pissing each other off. We do it respectfully, right. but we are, we all have this dynamic where like at the end of the meeting, we're like, it was just, an intellectual debate. We're all still friends here. Mm -hmm. um, and so Aron Aloni, he characterized that one well. And then the last guy I'll talk about is who was my boss for a while, Ryan Longfield, who was actually just stepped down as the chief revenue officer. Um, he was there for a long time. He, uh, that guy just exudes leadership, right? He's just very charismatic, builds followership among people like I've never seen before. Just like, when you think of like an inspiring leader, he would be the caricature of that. Personalities that you did describe of these great leaders, you know, great people who were the baseline of the success of, of, of Gong, of course. Um, do you think that a lot of those traits have been developed within the organization when they entered it and start building it? Or you think that there was already there a lot of those things they already had their experience. So essentially they gone won't be successful as it is if those people were didn't have the background they had with all the you know characteristics they had. A different way than you're saying. Uh those people brought those traits into the business. Okay. Um, what ended up happening though, and this happens at most companies is the first 20 to 25 people in a company, um, usually have very strong personalities and they dictate the culture of the business going forward. And so, right. Like we hired our first 20, 25 people, everybody, I mean, we, we had plenty of diversity, but like there were common threads among everybody about like mastering your craft and high standards of performance and that kind of thing. And that just set the tone for people we hired going forward. It set the behavioral norms for people going forward. And so now people um, started to mold themselves to, to that shape, right? But that shape didn't, you know, the, the original 20 to 25 people, um, they didn't get shaped. They did the shaping, 
That's you probably the best right. way I could say it. Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, did you guys hang out together after hours during happy hours? You did. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We did that all the when, time. When did you um, stop hanging out? How many people were at their company? The pandemic. the pandemic is what stopped it. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, I, I joined in 2016, mm -hmm. late 2016. And at the time I lived in Utah, I eventually moved out to the Bay area, but we would probably, you know, we'd either like go to pizza or dinner or like have happy hours at least once or twice a week. Um, because we were in, you know, eventually we were in the heart of San Francisco and then the pandemic just killed it. <laughs> it kind of sucked. But it wasn't right? like, and it, you, you didn't go back to after, after the pandemic too. Not really. Cause people moved, yeah. right? Like, uh, I mean, I was still in the Bay area, but like, we didn't even have an office. Um, now Gong does have an office in, in downtown San Francisco. So they probably have a little bit more of that now. Um, but I wasn't around to see mm -hmm. that come back together. And, you know, that's something I really miss. That's one of the, it's one of the secret reasons I flew my leaders of P club out here just this week. Yeah. We had some planning and stuff to be done, but I wanted to like kind of recreate that magic and I can feel it starting to happen. So it's really exciting. Yeah. Huh. Um, did you ever hurt someone in the office or just in the meetings room just saying, hey, gang is not as it was? You know, it's like it's not the same vibe when at scale. Oh, people said scale. that all the time. Yeah, people said that all the time. Um, and uh, the answer is it's true. Of course it's true. Companies evolve, right? Like it doesn't, that doesn't mean it's a bad thing though. Right. And uh, if you don't like it, just leave, <laughs> right? Like, so there, there were people like that, right? Like there was a couple of people or a couple types of people as we grew. One is people who just grew and evolved with the company. Two is people who grew and evolved with the company, but occasionally thought, oh man, the old days were fun. I would count myself as one of those people, right? Like I, I would reminisce, not in any spiteful way, but I would reminisce because the early days were fun. Yeah. And then there were people who were like, man, this company is just not the same in a complainy kind of way. Well, it's like, yeah. then leave. Like, obviously, this is not a good fit for you anymore. Um, and I think that's going to happen with literally any company yeah. ever that scales. The company will change, right? Like the feeling of the company at 10 people versus a thousand people will just be different. Even if some of the same cultural threads run through the veins of the company, you are naturally going to become more bureaucratic because mm -hmm. there's a lot more yeah. people and there's higher stakes to every decision you make. Mm -hmm. So yeah. there's this joke. Uh, I can't remember where I heard this from, um, but it was like the goal of early stage people, mm -hmm. right? The goal of early stage employees and entrepreneurs right. It's to create the thing that they hate, which is a big company. <laughs> and for some of them, it was like mission accomplished. Yeah, so true. Yeah. Uh, were there a certain type of people who didn't fit in this, this environment of the fast growth that usually when you have a solo, the, the personality of that type, you're just like, yeah, they're not going to hear. As soon as excuses came out of somebody's mouth, it was a death sentence for them. Like we saw the pattern enough. Where like if somebody started, you know, you hire somebody, you give them a ramp time three months in. If they keep saying like, oh, you know, things aren't happening because this, this and this. Um, eventually, those people wouldn't work out to the point where you could just predict it to a T. Right. Like years later, we had already seen that story or that movie several times. Sometimes a new person would come in three to four months into their tenure. They 
start not taking responsibility mm. and we're all kind of like, uh Oh, <laughs> I don't think this is going to work. Um, so that's one of them. That's the main one though. Like it's definitely not a place like a hyper growth company is not a place you go for an overt amount of work-life balance. Yeah. Now what I'm not set telling people is like, you totally have to sacrifice your work-life balance. If you work at a hyper growth startup. Cause I don't think that's true. Right. But like, you're not going to work 35 hours a week it, and there's, you'll probably be doing closer to 50, sometimes more. And if you're not okay with that, fine. There's nothing wrong with that. That's not what I choose. The one of the things I don't like is when people who are obsessed with work-life balance tell people who work a lot, which is me, that they shouldn't work that much. And I'm like, I like it. Yeah. Right. Like it, I like it. Now I like other things too. I got two little kids. I got a wife. I have yeah, friends. I, I try to take care of my health, but like, there's just like, and I get Thomas Edison is, or, I say that name, right? What, what is some, something in my brain just stopped working. Yeah. Thomas Edison. There's like a story of his wife, you know, after he's working all the time, his wife being like, take a break tomorrow morning. I want you to go wherever you want to have fun. And he goes, okay. And she wakes up the next morning and finds him in his like lab. She's like, I told you to go wherever you want. And he's like, I am, I like working. <laughs> so I don't know how I got into this tangent, but I think there is like this, uh, this ethos in the United States. I don't know if it's elsewhere where like a lot of people just see hard work as a bad thing. And it's like, look, if you don't want to work hard, I'm not imposing that on you. That's not what I'm doing. But like hard work, if you think about hard work, it's mm -hmm. actually an act of optimism. Oh, of course. <laughs> right? Like yeah. you're not working hard because you think it's going to create a bleak future for yourself. You're working hard because you think it's going to create a better future than your. So it's kind of like a gym in some yeah. ways. Now, if you're being forced to work hard and you don't have options and somebody's just cracking the whip at you, sure, that sucks. Yeah, that's a soul sucking situation. You should get out of that situation. Um, I guess what I'm trying to say is like some people, they should optimize for work-life balance and there's nothing wrong with that. Some people, their hobby and their passion in life is their work and that's okay too. I love passionate people and when a person is passionate about their work, um, they can be very creative and uh, when they create something and this is one of the best feeling when you started something that wasn't there. And then you have people creating um, through hard work, a dedication and passion. And this thing actually is there. It works. It's one of the best feeling. It's like, wow. Totally. Yeah. Um, what do you think was the main reason for people to stick around at Gong? I don't know if I can speculate for other people, no, but for in me. In your opinion, it, yeah. Yeah. For, for me, it was, um, it was our leaders. Right. Like for, for me, it was like specifically I was if I left, I knew I would miss the hell out of a meet and Udi and Jameson and Ryan and Iran and some of those other people. And I do. I still do. Like I the gong was some of the best years of my life. I still think my best years are ahead of me because of I'm an eternal optimist. Yeah. But it was so fun. And like, I mean, they were just such I don't even know if fun is the right way, but just it was just such an energizing environment to be around those people. 
right? Like Amit was a mentor of mine. Um, and he took me out to dinner, just me and him a couple of times, even when the company got big and he would mentor me and he t- took the time to, um, cause he knew I wanted to be a CEO one day. He took the time to like teach me lessons. Um, I'll tell you one story about Amit actually, like this tells you the quality of him. Um, this was probably in late 2017. I had just moved to the Bay Area, right? Me asked me and my family to move. And at that point in my life, I was like dysfunctionally frugal with money, right? Because like I grew up in a lower income household. And so money was felt very scarce to me. Mm-hmm. And so we started, you know, making decent money, me and my wife and, and mm-hmm. kids, and I wanted to save it all. And if my wife asked for a hundred bucks to go put the kids in soccer, I freaked out, right? Like very dysfunctional mm-hmm. to the point where me and my wife had to like go to couples therapy to like get this untangled. And there was one morning now, now keep in mind, Amit gave me a very generous raise when I moved from Salt Lake to right. the Bay area. Like it was more than money, right? So it was more than a cost of living raise. And there was one morning I got in a fight with my wife, a bad fight before work about something money related. I can't remember what it was, but I was obviously flustered. And I drove to the office in San Francisco and Amit could tell, right? Like I was sitting right next to me or right next to him. And he goes, Hey, Chris, can we go talk for a few minutes? <laughs> so I got into a conference room with him and he goes, what's wrong? Like I, I can read this all over your face. And I told him what had happened that morning, just almost like as a therapy session. And he like emphasized or empathized with me and the conversation ended. And I thought that was that I thought that was over the next day. I come into the office and he pulls me into a conference room and he goes, Hey, I've got something for you. I'll make you a deal. Keep in mind. He had just given me a raise. He goes, I'll make you a deal. I'll give you an extra $12,000 a year, right? A thousand bucks a month before taxes. I'll give you that raise right now even though I just gave you one, if you promise to me that you spend every dollar of that on your family and you just use that extra thousand bucks a month to put the kids in soccer and to do fun stuff throughout the Bay Area. And I was like shocked. Like, I was like, yes, absolutely. I remember walking to like the Caltrain after that to go home being like, what the fuck just happened? Like, is, is this real? And like that, that's a me. Right. That that is that moment like influenced how I think about leadership. Right. He cared enough to here's an extra thousand bucks a month. Go prioritize your family. Now, I'm sure some people are listening and they're thinking, oh, that doesn't solve the problem, Chris. He's just giving you a bunch of money. Sure. But it was still a very kind gesture. And long story short, we did. Me and my wife did solve that problem. I, uh, yeah. I now don't have weird hangups with money <laughs> somehow. <laughs> I mean, I think that the moral of this is, I mean, it helped you to make a first step, right? He yeah. gave you an incentive for you to be more easy with the first step. But once you start your journey into solving the problem, right? And you saw that actually can do that, then that's already half of the solution. And then you just through hard work, you ended up obviously, you know, addressing and solving the problem. So I think that this is one of the best things he could actually do for you, right? Yeah. Especially when- he just, I mean, he just signaled to me that yeah. he cares about his people, yeah. Yeah. right? You, yeah. you don't do that if you don't care about your people. Yeah. My last question about the, the people block and then we're going to move on. Um, 
how would you rate the communication in, in at Gong at, 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 throughout your time in them? Um, have you had some times at that hyper growth scale when the communication wasn't properly addressed? And then what did the company do to, you know, to kind of help that fix, get everyone together? Any like two, three, four examples of the change? Yeah, I mean, so like, I have never heard of a hyper a company in hyper growth that doesn't have communication issues. That is the, it is a defining characteristic of a company that's growing very fast is communication will break down because people forget that they need to communicate what they're doing to a constituent of other people. I was more guilty of that than anybody in the entire company. I did that shit all the time. I still do that. <laughs> this is like a skill gap that I have. Um, so in some senses, like we were very good at communicating at Gong because we had such this, such a direct culture mm -hmm. where we'd call each other out. We would argue, um, and just get things on the table. We weren't afraid to say what was on our mind. So in some senses, we were very good at communicating, but like, you know, making sure marketing and sales was already all on the same page and customer success and post-sale. I don't have a specific example, but it's just the state the most common state of a hyper growth company is there's some sort of miscommunication happening yeah. and there's no single thing you can do to like solve that problem. It is something you have to constantly be aware of and constantly solving the best. I mean, the best advice I can give, which was advice my CRO gave me when he was coaching me on this stuff is he said, anytime you're about to make a decision, just get in the habit of stepping back and thinking who is affected by this and who do I need to let know that I'm doing this, right? Because I used to just make these decisions in, in isolation, right? I'd be like, all right, my team is doing this now. And we would do it. And then everybody around me would be pissed off because I didn't let anybody know. So, I mean, if, if that's you, right? Like if you're the people listening are, are thinking like, God, my startup's growing so fast, but we all suck at communicating. Yeah, that, that's hyper growth. Now don't accept it. Don't just let it happen lean into it, but there's no, like, there's no do this one thing yeah. and that problem will be solved forever. It, at least that I know of. If there is, somebody please reach out to me, teach me. <laughs> I don't know the answer, though. Yeah. <laughs> of course, it's, you know, starts with the leadership, right? As you said, like, you step back, you look who can be affected, and then as a leader, lead with example, right? If you build on your communication, then probably it's going to be affected with the team. Now, a follow-up question about the sort of, like, the whole communication crisis. Um, did you hear a lot the word uh, or words burned out? Oh, I'm so burned out. Yeah, I'm burned out. Um, that, that happened a lot, uh, particularly in like 2020 and 2021, right? Like pandemic, um, that initial economic collapse in the pandemic, I think created a lot of burnout. Um, I think be, people being remote, as much as everybody loves remote work, I think it causes burnout. I love remote work, but like you don't get the same energy you get as being in a room with somebody, right? Like eye contact is weird on virtual because we've got to like toggle between looking at our webcams and looking here. It just doesn't feel the same. And so we saw that a lot. And, you know, I don't know what the answer to that is. I think it's a case by case basis. I think this comes down to managing and leading your people well and knowing where they are. Um, I think some companies take it too far, right? Like <clears throat> when the pandemic started, every company on the planet was like, D don't talk about anything in your one-on-one. -on -one. Just have coffee with your people and ask them how they're doing. 
And like some people that was okay, but some people are like, okay, boss, like I don't come to work. I don't need another friend. I would go buy a dog if I wanted that. I want to be successful. (laughs) So I think it's a case by case thing. I think some companies take, I think they have very good intentions to address burnout, but like sometimes their tactics to do so just don't work. Right. Like if I was burned out and all my boss like every one-on-one I have with my bosses, he's just like, hey, how are you doing? Be like, Good. I need to close deals. That's why I'm burned out is I'm not closing deals. <laughs> Do you think it's I'm not shitting on that. Yeah. Like you should yeah. check in with your people. Just right. like, yeah. that's all we did for like six months. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's so true. That's so ironic. I mean, that's true. That's so true, right? When the, the you know, the COVID happened, the first thing you do, like you need just to hang out, you need to just chat, don't talk business because you don't see each other for that often, yeah. right? Give a, give a space for your people to vent. If they need to vent, do that, right? But like, that, that's the, and get to know them over time. But, you know, there were companies where it's just, and we at Gong did it for like a couple months where it's like just coffee chat with RP. Mm. Okay. <laughs> so uh, obviously there's no good answer to this question, but then if you were to choose one, uh, so the addressing the burnout problem should be a leader problem, a company culture, HR processes, or the individual personal thing that again, if I'm feeling I should be working on that. I think it just, it depends on what is causing the burnout, right? If you have a wide scale burnout in your company, The next question is why? And so the solution is gonna depend on why it's happening, right? You might have a leader at the top of the organization who is a wrecking ball. I've seen that happen. I saw that happen in Gong. You know, I won't say who, um, but that did happen. There was like a section of the organization that like across the board, that entire org was burned out and it turned out because the leader was just, that person was a wrecking ball. You remove that person, burnout was alleviated. But sometimes that's not the case. Sometimes other people are burned out because the company is not growing proportionate to how much effort everybody's putting. Right. One of the things I've noticed is like people who have a propensity to work hard will never run out of energy as long as progress is being thrown off from their effort. If you're working 60, 70 hours a week, though, and nothing's moving forward, I get burned out from, oh my God, (laughs) I would be, I'd be burned to a crisp. So I think it, you know, the, the answer is it depends and it depends on what's causing it. And sometimes it could be an org pattern and sometimes it could be person by person Mm -hmm. or team by team. Mm -hmm. If we reflect on the Gong story, what, what is, what, where, what was the success factor of this hyper growth company to become successful? It comes back to that same thing I started with, right? Product so good that a week go to market team could sell it. But, but it's, you know, one of the things that gave us that initial velocity though, that I think other startups underappreciate is like, we had three things and most startups only have two. We had great product market fit. Most startups have, or will have that if they're growing. Uh, we had a great sales team. And most startups do that. But we also invested in great marketing early on. And those three things are a flywheel, right? If you have great marketing, great sales, great product, you're going to skyrocket. And most startups, they don't get marketing. They don't do it. 
And if they do it, they're not very good at it. And we were very, very good at marketing and it made selling so much easier, right? It's like uh, when you put all three of those together, a great product, great sales and, and great marketing, it's like having a hot knife and slicing into butter. It just separates it, right? Everything gets out of its way. I mean, you got you guys have had you know great marketing. You pioneered a lot of things in the actual acquisition space, and you know great sales team. Uh, but then, you know, every organization has something that stands out. Like you know, Zappos had their support team, right? We have our delivery team that is best in the entire industry. Who, in your opinion, stood out in the crowd at Gong? Kind of that made it work. If you pick one, I think it was the uh, the company value that we called create raving fans, right? So like, it wasn't even a value, like Amit defined our company operating principles. And he specifically said, these are not values. These are principles that you should use to make decisions when you have no one else to consult. So if you can't, if you can't ask your boss, what should I do in this situation? Then these are your guiding posts. And one of them is when in doubt, create a raving fan. And so everybody in the company Right. If they were in support, in CS, in sales, in product, if they ran into a situation where they had an opportunity to turn one of our customers into a raving fan, they would do it. Gong was very, very good about living their operating principles and not just having them like up on the website. Like they they were talked about every day. They were used to make decisions. That one to me stood out the most. What were the other principles that you remember? So another one was challenge conventional wisdom, which I took to heart. Like today, it's almost annoying how much I question everything. Yeah. <laughs> like I think everything is like conventional wisdom yes. and we could like redo entire industries just by having that um, challenge conventional mis- wisdom mm-hmm. mindset. That was a good one. Another one was called no sugar, which which means we didn't sugarcoat things, right? We were very direct with with each other. And it was very productive, yeah. sometimes yeah. scary, yeah. <laughs> like having arguments with people favor the long term. That was another one mm-hmm. right? that we were pretty good at. Enjoy the ride was one that like, I think Aww. some people were good at and some yeah. people weren't. I, I don't think I was that good at that one. Yeah. I know why I, I saw your video back of, of you 2016 and you haven't heard, you haven't heard that gray hair back then. <laughs> so it's been seven years and yeah. I, I noticed i was like okay you know because i was oh, yeah, very, I very different than i did yeah. when i started <laughs> so obviously the, the ride was there you grew a lot but then enjoyment yeah. of the ride right any advice you would give yourself as the head of sales now with all the experience you have it would be never be a head of sales be the guy who hires and fires heads of sales <laughs> That that is, I mean, so that's actually a funny. Uh, this is a personal thing, right? Oh, like, right. I just uh, no, I'm willing to share it. It's just I wouldn't recommend this advice to other people. There are other people who want to be a head of, head of sales, and I and I have no problem with that. Mm-hmm. If I worked for a company, that's what job I would want. Yeah. Um, I just realized that I'll never be, I'll never not be an entrepreneur again. Um, when I was leaving Gong, it was about this time last year, I went to breakfast with a meet in San Francisco and he was one of the first people to know that I was going to be leaving. And I told him two things. I said, number one, Gong will be the last company I ever work for. I'll be a serial entrepreneur from here on out. And number two, I don't want to be a CRO. I want to hire and fire CRO. 
<laughs> now, I don't recommend that to other people unless like, you truly want to be an entrepreneur. So the question is, what advice would I give if if I was, um, you know, had a, to my old self, if I was head of yeah. sales? I'd say uh, get obsessed about getting hiring right earlier. Right. Because like I made a few mishires uh, as I was building that org up to 30 and yeah. it puts a big dent in your culture and your revenue and that kind of thing. Um, and I was overconfident that I could take some people and train them up and some people you can train up pretty well, but some people they're not going to improve no matter what. So that's one of them. Yeah, probably those. The other is just like, why do you want to be ahead of sales? I wanted it for the wrong reasons. Um, I wanted it because at that point in my life, as embarrassing as this is to admit, one of the measures that I defined success as how many people report to me. And now, I mean, we talked about this. I only want two reports. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> so I think that's one is like, why do you want to be ahead of sales? Um, and if it's because like you really get jazzed from yeah. like building a great org and making people successful, which I did, but I get jazzed even more by being an entrepreneur and creating new market value. Yeah. So. Do you think you did a good job as the head of sale? Yes, I, I was good at the job. Wait, so um, can you answer me why do you think you were a good head of sale? I think it was, there's probably a few things. Uh, I'm very good at improving people's skills who are willing to have their skills improved. Like I know how to coach people and train people in a way that transforms their skill set. Um, I know how to sell very well myself. Right. Like that's not the job of a head of sales, but if you can't do it, you're going to have a hard time um, getting people to see you as credible. Um, I was very good at inspiring people and leading people. You mentioned that there were some kind of mishires or you didn't, you know, hire the right people. Um, so you can focus more on that if you go back. Um, are there anything else that you would do differently now if you were to do it again? I would build stronger relationships with my cross-functional partners early on. That's something that took me a while to get right. Right. Like I, I, my first year in that role, I ran that team in isolation, right? I, I didn't really work with CS. I didn't really work with marketing, the other functions I needed to. And it was like a painful transition, right? I had to learn that skill. My boss gave me hard feedback a couple times on that. And it was painful. I'm super grateful I went through it now, though, because like now I know how to build those and, you know, build a cross-functional network. But uh, that's something I should have done from the beginning. At the beginning, I just saw my job as me and my sales team. And that was my job. And what great second line leaders and third line leaders do is they think their number one team is their cross-functional partners first and foremost. And then their sales team is actually their second team. And it took me a long time to adopt that mind mindset. I'm loving this. Oh my God. I'm just thinking how many people I would share our conversation with just because you were spot on on things. Just last week, I have a meeting with the entire leadership team where we on a scheme 
talk about the importance of the cross-function communication and cross-function work as one of the basics for good leadership and for the good actually execution, right? Because that's what at the scale or a hyper That's your entire job when yeah. you get to the senior yeah. ranks yeah. is just working side by side with other executives. Yeah. yeah. As an executive, have you always been supported, heard, given the green light by the C-level or were there moments where when the decisions were not made in your favor? Now, I was always heard. And part of that, part of that, though, is and I want to be careful about this one, because I think there is plenty of companies who don't let other people's voices speak for either sexist or other reasons like that. That caveat aside. It's not about you being heard by your executives. It's about you making yourself heard, right? That is a, like advocating for yourself and your function. That is a huge skill that nobody talks about. And like, it's not the executive team's job to go around the room and make sure everybody has voiced their opinion and, you know, make sure everybody feels heard. In a perfect world, it would look like that. And we need to do some systemic things to make sure underrepresented people are heard more. Um, however, like the reality that we live in is executives live in time and attention poverty. They live, they have plenty of cash, but it's almost like they can't breathe. Sometimes they have, you know, so little time. And so they don't have time to ask everybody their opinion and make sure everybody feels heard. And so my advice to somebody who's rising through the ranks with plenty of exceptions to this is that you have got to make yourself heard. Advocating is a skill, mm. right? This is like how you manage it. Yeah. Follow-up question. Um, have you had moments in your career where you didn't get what you wanted? Eventually, was it a good thing or a bad thing? Yeah, I mean, that. my entire goal at Gong during the five years I was there is to be get promoted to vice president. And I got very close but I, I never got a VP of title um, and I thought I was going to get it uh, in hindsight though. Now the rest of this context, your, this rest of this conversation gives you context. I don't want that job. <laughs> now I don't. And, and, you know, I am probably glad I got it because I think if I did get the VP job, I probably wouldn't be an entrepreneur right now. Right. I probably would have gotten, uh, you know, been more complacent and happy with the job that I had. And it would have been harder for me to take a risk again. And P Club, right, like P Club's the the biggest blessing in my career I've had to date, even more so than gone. We're not even at a year in business yet. And we already have multiple seven figures on the do- on the board. And so we're grown like crazy. And I wouldn't have you know, had this experience and had this opportunity, I don't think anyway. Uh, if I got what I want back then. The reason I asked, I have a few people I work with that were humbled down because there are some opportunities that were not presented to them. And I see that. And the reason they, the opportunities were not presented exactly to humble down the person and sort of like give them more time to develop the skill set that they need to be successful with their job. But it's so tough on the person to to get no or not to get the opportunity on their pride and ego, right? And it's like, I deserve that, but I wasn't given that. So do we have any advice for those people that, you know, based on your experience? 
the, the people who feel like they deserved it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they were not given just to, to stay on and just kind of wait out and, and develop the skill set, you know, work on something or. I mean, I, I think it's a case by case basis, mm -hmm. right? Like the the mindset you shouldn't have is I deserve it because if mm -hmm. you didn't, it doesn't matter. You don't get what you deserve, right? What's that quote? You don't get what you deserve. You get what you negotiate. That's the truth. Now, maybe you did deserve it. And if you think that's the case and you're truly feel like you're being undervalued, go to a different company. Now, most likely, I don't want to say most likely, but there's a non-trivial chance that you actually have not grown your skill set enough yeah. or you haven't done something that needs to be done to be able to earn that promotion. And so take your lens, take your entitled lens off just for a second and see if that's the case. For me, it totally was like, I look back and I'm like, oh, no wonder I never got promoted. Um, it took me forever to build cross-functional relationships. I didn't manage up well. I managed down well. Eventually, I managed sideways well once I got that cross-functional thing. I don't think I ever really managed up very well, aside from advocating. I was good at that part, but I was my bosses were always surprised with things that I was doing. <laughs> and I was given that feedback. And it's fair. It's like, okay, I, uh, there was a skill gap that I had that I would have needed to close for my boss to, in good conscience, promote me to vice president. Hard to admit in the moment. It's easy for me to say that years later. Right. This is like three years ago or so. Mm -hmm. So the pain isn't there anymore. Sometimes as executives, we need to make some hard decisions and they were not obvious and we were just going with the gut, right? And sometimes the gut feeling is is right. Sometimes it's not. And that's why, you know, you cannot make all hundred percent of the, your decisions, right? Right. <laughs> there might be some that are wrong. And sometimes, uh, you know, the decision was, was wrong and you can just admit that. But sometimes if you, you know, you're right, right. Sometimes you can make the same decision twice. The first right, you are wrong. The, the second time you're right. Right. And especially about the promotion of people, right. So you just need to be patient. Now, a few personal questions. Um, six years with Gong, hyper growth, these years must have been transformational for you. Um, did anything change in you? What did change in you for all those years? I think I grew a level of grit that I probably didn't have before, right? Like I was gritty coming into Gong, but it was mainly based off of passion, which is good. But there's another kind of grit, which is like, can you persevere through very difficult times? And prior to like the pandemic, I don't think I ever really had super difficult times in my career. Maybe a couple like I, OK, I, I did start a company and that failed. <laughs> that was hard. But I, I think the pandemic was even harder. Um, and, you know, some of the things that came from that. So I think I learned like a level of tolerance to just pain. Um, I think that's part of it. I think I became a more diversity diversity sensitive person um i think gong taught me that a lot is like i grew up kind of in a bubble right in salt lake city where like 90 percent of the population is white and you know there are certain cultural parts to different pockets of, of utah that don't lend themselves well to diversity that's not all of utah i love utah as a state but there are parts of it and <clears throat> You know, that's what I grew up in. So that was my frame of reference. And then you move to San Francisco, which is ultra diverse and ultra progressive. And there were a lot of things that I had to learn. Like, I won't go into a lot of specifics, but 
Um, now, today, when we're hiring people at P Club, I'm very conscious of, is it fair? And do we have a, a diverse pool of candidates? And are we building our culture in a way that lends itself to diverse perspectives? Right. I don't want just, a, you know, I don't want our first 20 people to be white males. <laughs> um, not just because it's a social justice thing, although that's a huge part of it, but because it's for the good of the company to have diversity. So I think I'm, I'm far more diversity sensitive than I was. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm happy to admit that. What else? Uh, I got chilled out a little bit, right? Like the money story I told you about, I used to just be crazy about money. And now I'm not like a free spender or anything, but like, and that might just, you know, maybe that just came with age. Right. So no, those are probably a few okay. ways. Yeah. What do you appreciate the most from your time at Gong? All of it. And there's like leadership lessons. I built skills. I built a huge reputation from, you know, spending time at Gong. Um, I learned, I think the biggest thing is like, it prepared me perfectly well to go be an entrepreneur of a fast growing company. Like I saw the movie, I saw what good looks like. And now when I'm making decisions to grow P club, like I'm drawing on the six year experience that I had at Gong. Do you have any professional regrets? No, no, um, I don't because I think about the concept of regret a lot, right? Like mm -hmm. I think about like, what would I regret the most? Yeah. And I don't do that thing, <laughs> uh, which is one of the reasons I like starting companies, right? Like yeah. I, I'm a big, um, I'm a big believer that like fear is like the ultimate illusion that keeps people trapped, right? Like people are terrified of, and I'm not saying everybody should be an entrepreneur, but I'm using it as an example. Mm -hmm. People are terrified to start a company. They think they're more afraid to start a company than they are dying. It's like, it's like somehow those are in the same ballpark where it's like, dude, you know, if your company failed, if you started a company and it failed, nothing bad really nothing would change. <laughs> like you'd figure it out. You would be yeah. fine. Yeah. And so I think fear is, you know, it's just like the ultimate illusion. There's so many ways you can grow and there's so many like aspects of having a dream life that are achievable just by changing your relationship with fear and like doing things that you're afraid of as long as what you truly want is on the other side of it. Like I have candidates who are incredibly passionate about what we're building at P club. And I've had one or two of them turn us down and I say, why? And they say, well, I just feel like I need a more secure job. Mm -hmm. I'm like, mm, I just, I have a, you do you and you know, you live your life to your values, but I feel like you're, whatever you're choosing is not more secure than this. And this is not as insecure as you think it is. There's no secure, unsecure, not secure yeah. anymore, right? Secure. Ultimate security is prison. Like if you want ultimate security, you want somebody to bring you a meal three times a day. Yeah. Go to prison. That's security and freedom are at odds with each other. Mm -hmm. People think those are the same things. They're not. Freedom is terrifying. Yeah. Right. Freedom is doing things without a safety net. Yeah. But you get freedom. Security. The more security you have, the more freedom you get up or yeah. you give up. But you have security. You have somebody else taking care of you. Yeah. Or at least 
That's the illusion. A hyper growth is like a lot of stress, a lot of tiredness. How did you look at, how did you notice your tiredness and your stress and what did you do about it? I mean, I'm tired today. Mm. I, uh, I still deal with that and I have no reason to be tired today. Right. Like I, uh, yesterday was an amazing day. Um, I ended our offsite, right. With my leaders, I went home and I was just inspired out of my mind about what we're building and like what our future looked like. So you'd think like I would wake up the next day, just full of energy. And I woke up today at 6am and I was tired mm -hmm. and I didn't want to do anything. I wanted to cancel my entire day and just take a nap, <laughs> including this podcast. Yeah. I didn't do it though, as you can see. So, so much fun, right? And then you would miss yeah, that. Now, I mean, now I'm having fun. Yeah. I don't know what the answer to that is. I actually feel like that's something I struggle with is like, I struggle with energy. Like sometimes I have a ton of energy, um, like in my reserve tank about like, I push very hard. I'm building a company, but like sometimes I inexplicably, inex how do I say that word? Inexplicably <laughs> get tired. Like I, again, today's a good example. Like, I don't, I don't know if it's like diet or lack of exercise. That's probably Is it a physical or a mental tiredness. It feels kind of like both. both. I think part of it is like, I have a lot of hiring to do. Yeah. Um, it's and like procrastination is, type of. Yeah. And that, that's weighing heavy on me because like, I also have a lot of stuff to do that's not hiring, but I know that's all going to get easier when I make mm -hmm. these hires, but I have to do both of those things right now. Mm -hmm. So I think just staring down the barrel of my to-do list yeah sometimes wears me out sometimes that energizes me. yeah sometimes it wears me out though um i'm not great at exercise lately mm -hmm. like three years ago i was in the best shape of my life during the pandemic um right now i work out like once a week which i need to change um you should uh, you should listen to um we are we already live with this season and uh, you should listen to the first episode about the 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 mental health and health care and generally like the personal health um one of the guests uh, he's like a you know he's like world famous number one public speaker he he's doing like 200 or has done 200 public speeches every year for like 30 years and the guy is like 62 uh, his name is chip and he's exercising almost every day and you would see the energy that he produces at that age and i'm always like oh my god i want to be there so the, the way that, that I am trying to show up every day and do something is just to kind of to get to that point, you know, with, with, with my health. Um, what advice do you have for executives of the hyper growth startups? So if I'm an executive of a hyper growth startup, advise me something. Hire people that are better than you. That's probably the best I can give you, right? Like, there's no specific advice I can give to that person because their challenge, every situation is going to look different. But like, I can tell you this, if you hire people that are worse than you, you're going to have a bad time. Right. So raising your talent bar, that's probably the best thing you can do because like, if you pack your team with a players, you can do a lot of other things wrong and you'll still win. If you pack your team with B players and C players, you can do a lot of things right. And you're still going to lose. It's like, Hiring the wrong people is like putting an anchor around your ankles and trying to run. So, I mean, that's, that's the biggest thing. A, hire people. B, make sure they're great. 
This is for leaders, now for the people that work in the hypergrowth startup. You got to want it. <laughs> Just be honest with yourself. Is that what you want? Because for some people, it's the best thing in the world. For some people, it sucks. So, like, just decide which one you are and embrace it. And, like, if you're not one for hypergrowth startups, stop bitching about it and just get out of it. Or if you change your mind on on the way, right? It's it's okay. Yeah, if if it outgrows you or you outgrow it, either one, it's fine, too. Yeah. Yeah. P-Club and Quota Signal is almost a year you are... You know, again, building your companies, you know, pushing them. Um, how are you feeling? Uh, good. Uh, depending on the day, very good. Like I said, today I'm kind of tired, but like we're going to build P-Club into a multi-nine-figure annual revenue business. And, and I have 100% confidence that's going to happen. And that energizes me, especially because I know how much value we're going to create with a community of people that I love, which is professional salespeople and sales leaders, right? That's, that is who we serve with P-Club. And so I'm having the time of my life, right? Like I love creating value. I love creating new things. I love growing companies. And so I'm at the height of my energy with the exception of today specifically. <laughs> today is a bad example. In general though, um, 10 out of 10 as far as energy levels. Uh, can you speak to me about the... How did you embark on the, on this journey? When was the, the time you sort of like group together the idea for, you know, for P-Club and you just say, okay, this is what I wanted to do. This is why I think I should spend my next five, 10, 15 years, you know, going through the motion. Was it person you talked to, you know, the idea you had sort of like. Well, me and my co-founder have had this idea for about 10 years. And so I think we just finally decided to act on it, right? Like our life situations aligned such that I was leaving Gong and he was getting to leave his company. Mm-hmm. And I created an online course to see if it would make some side money. And it blew up like crazy. I was like, Hey, you want to start a company together? <laughs> <laughs> That's literally how it happened. Right. And like, we learned about the market. We figured yeah. out what problem we were solving. We decided we were very passionate about solving mm-hmm. that problem. We raised a little bit of money. Um, and we were off to the races from there. What's the what's the long term vision for the company besides the nine figure valuation or revenue? I want to make the biggest contribution to global sales success of any company on the planet. So I want to make more sales people more successful than any company has ever done before. That's my goal. Uh, last question. Any recent challenges uh, you've been battling with, you know, that you can share with me? Maybe we can brainstorm for a solution. You know, it's just, it's just all execution for us. We've got a great opportunity. Um, we've, you know, product market strategy is always a moving target, but we've we've got it in our crosshairs. And so there's nothing to like unstick for us except for just doing the hard work. Right? Like I've got to go make three hires to our leadership team and it's just about getting it done. Yeah. Right. So that's another thing I've observed about people who are successful in startups is they have a very aggressive bias for action. Right. They shorten the delta between thought and action. So that time lapse is very short. 
And so just, and we do that well at P club. Like that's a huge part of our culture is, is acting on things. very. What do you think about the timing? Recession slow down. I think it's perfect. Um, it's perfect for two reasons. One selling skill transformation to a sales organization is very compelling right now because everybody's struggling with selling. So in some ways this is good for us. But two, I would rather start a company in a recession than operate a company in a recession, right? Because like starting, you're going from zero and just everything is like upside. If I was running a $50 million business today, I'm sure we'd have a bunch of churn and a bunch of problems because of the economy. So it feels to me like we started at the perfect time. Yes, the companies at the 50 mil are there. I can, I can guarantee that. <laughs> that's, you know, that's not the, the best time when you started the year and you're like, hey, I'm going to have that growth and that growth is not happening. And you're like, but I already spent all those money for the growth and it's not happening. What are you going to do, you know? So, yeah. Hey, any final message to the listeners? Something that maybe I didn't ask or something I wanted to share with the platform? I would just say, if you want to break the curve and grow very fast in your career, prioritize skill acquisition, right? That's the biggest thing. Um, one of the things I like to talk about a lot lately is if you think about the distance between you and your like dream life, the distance is not measured in time. It's measured in skills, right? Like you don't just let time pass and suddenly you wake up to your dream life. It is if you can accelerate your rate of skill acquisition, the kind of skills that your dream life demands, then you will get to know what it feels like to turn a decade into a year and compress that time. And so like, if there's any one message I, I could give to like anybody anywhere about being successful in business is prioritize skill acquisition above just about everything else. Awesome. Hey, Thank you so much. It's been great. This is exactly the conversation that I was hoping for and kind of excited about. Thank you so much for sharing all of the right, true information, true answers that some of them I knew, some of them I didn't knew. So I learned a lot. So thank you so much, Chris. Great. Thanks, Michael.